The scripture for today's teaching comes from the Gospel of Mark. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was behind the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is God's word. Good morning to you. We are uh, concluding today a study we have undertaken this summer on uh, the parables of Jesus. And uh, I suggested last week for those of you who are uh, teachers or writers or counselors, uh, really anyone uh, interested in compelling others to your point of view, which I expect all of us, uh, it's interesting to consider why Jesus, uh, the one everyone considers the greatest teacher who ever lived, uh, why he used parables. And last week I gave you a definition, a famous one of a parable. A parable is a metaphor, assembly, uh, uh, drawn from nature or everyday life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt of its precise application in order to tease the mind into active thought. That Jesus, as uh, he was more than a teacher, but as a master teacher, that Jesus is teasing the mind into active thought for you to engage. Because Jesus could have just said, uh, God loves you no matter what and welcomes you home and looks, with you, looks on you with compassion no matter what you've done. But for that really to get down to the soil of your heart, he says, there was a man with two sons. It tells these famous stories, these famous parables. Parables, it's been said, are like sugar-coated pills. 
That's how you entice someone to take a bit of medicine that's bitter but sorely needed. Ingmar Bergman, uh, the uh, brilliant Swedish film director, described, uh, Bergman described once what he was going for in his films. He said, at first you give the audience a pill that tastes good. And then you give them some more pills with some vitamins. But with some poison too. And very slowly you give them stronger and stronger doses. Now by poison, uh, Bergman doesn't mean to harm. He means a potent ingredient that has the power of healing. But this is very difficult to swallow. And that's what parables do. They contain very hard medicine. And I suggested last week that's one way to know that you're actually listening to Jesus, is that his words get under the surface of your life. They till the soil of your life, and they bring you to a point of crisis. Morna Hooker is one of the great Bible scholars of the 20th century, and she said that's what Jesus was always going for in the Gospels. He was always aiming to bring his listener to a point of crisis, a crisis. She said the Christian life begins with something very simple. Uh, God loves you so very much that uh, Jesus was willing to lay down his life to pay all your debts and to set you free. It begins with something very simple, but Hooker, Dr. Hooker said, if you take this pill in, if you take Jesus at his word, sooner or later it brings you to a point of crisis. And that point of crisis is what confronted the people who met Jesus face to face, and that's who is going to be the Lord of your life? Will it be you? Or will there be a death to self? Will you renounce all your old ways of doing things? And if you take that in, it, it's, it's quite traumatic. It's a transformation of all your ways of thinking. And, that, and that's how you know you're actually listening to these parables is it, it, they get around the backside of your life. They wound you from behind. And as you, as you turn them over, the medicine gets deep down into your bones and it, it unsettles you. And I, I asked last week, I wonder if this parable does that for you. It's very famous, but I wonder if you hear the sadness in it. This parable about four different types of soils. It starts very uh, innocently enough. A sower went out to sow. A farmer went out to sow his seed and it fell among four different types of soil. And we said last week these soils represent different ways than and now that people respond to the message of Jesus. And we're spending two weeks on this parable because most consider it the parable on all the parables. Indeed, on all of Jesus' teaching. Jesus himself says in our text in verse 13, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? That is, there's something that Jesus intends us to gather here about listening to everything he has to say to us about our lives, about how we listen, and are we willing for the surface of our lives to be broken open? This is meant to be very personal. Are you listening? How are you listening? How is your heart? Because if you aren't willing to stand under Jesus and his words about reality, then the other wonderful things that Jesus says like, blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope. That's Eugene Peterson's translation of Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope. You'll never believe that unless you're willing to slow down and take Jesus at his word. So we're focusing on this parable about how we listen. 
because it touches upon everything our Lord has to say to us. And I said last week, and I'll repeat again today, this parable is meant to be very personal to you. Very personal. It's not meant to be for the person next to you. Well, I hope he's listening. <laughs> it's meant to be very personal, and I added very present. And by present, one way to dilute this parable is to assume it's a once and for all. No, this is meant to be very personal and present for you here, now, today, to ask, how is my heart? How is my heart? And the second reason I wanted us to, uh, to spend two weeks on it is this parable captures as much as any in the Bible what we're after at Pacific Crossroads, our vision, what we want to see happen in our midst. So this is part two. Now, don't worry if you weren't here last week. It stands on its own. But I encourage you, if you did miss last week, to go back and listen to part one. Because last week uh, was diagnosis. This is a diagnostic parable. And what I meant by that is we looked at these four soils and I asked you to do some self-diagnosis of the way you are hearing Jesus, the way you're listening to Jesus. But a good doctor, of course, doesn't just give you a diagnosis. She gives you a prognosis, a way forward, a way toward healing. And that's where I want us to focus today. Kind of so what? So last week we gave Matthew's version of Jesus' parable, and this is one of the few parables that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And today from the Gospel of Mark, and I apologize beforehand that I won't be able to address all your questions about this difficult parable. But let's look again at this first soil. Jesus says that some soil fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. So you've got the scene clearly in your mind. The farmer is sowing the seed, and some fell along the path. The path, And then in his explanation, verse 19, Jesus tells us that every time the word is spoken, there are spiritual forces. They're invisible but very real, malicious forces at work. The soil of your life. Jesus says the word is heard, but it never takes root. And I suggested that perhaps most of you, I mean, after all, you're here on a Sunday listening, most of you think this is the one soil you don't have to worry about. This is the one that doesn't have to appeal to you, but I ask you to listen closer. For what is this path? This path is the well-traveled road. This is the busy and main street of just doing things like you've always done them, business as usual. And it's this image of the birds. Jesus says, and the birds came down, and the birds devoured the seed. And I suggested that you and I, that we have a, one of those inaudible supersonic whistles and we summon, we summon whole flocks of birds to come down upon our life and devour the word of the Lord, gobble it up before it ever has a chance to take root. And those birds come circling again and again, first thing every morning, that this is where the battle must be fought, the trajectory of your day. That if you pick up your phone each morning, first thing, like most of us do, to check your text or your social media or your email, do you realize what you're doing? You're summoning whole flocks of birds. And as someone said to me after the service last week, in the case of Twitter, those actually birds. <laughs> those, are, those are real those are birds. You're calling in to come down and ensure that you will not be digesting, taking in, meditating upon God's wisdom, God's promises for you for that day. Why would we deprive ourselves of that? Why would we do that? And you've heard the statistics. It's a bit horrifying to realize how glued to our technology we've become. 
If you spend over four hours a day on your phone, and that's the average for most of us, four plus hours, you know, you know how, how long we think it is? We think it's two hours. But the average for most of us is four plus hours. I had someone with a master's in math help me with this, so forgive me for the math, but if you started using your phone early in your teens and lived an average life expectancy, you would spend over the course of your life almost 12 years on your phone. 12 years on your phone. If you have children, that's more time quantitatively than you'll ever spend with any of your children. You'll spend with your screen. Now, I'm not anti-technology, uh, but technology is not a neutral tool. And I'm suggesting that if we do not get extremely serious about how we manage this tool, that it will drastically affect our relationships, and it has. It will drastically affect your capacity for empathy, and it has. It will drastically affect your ability to engage in critical thinking. See, the essay is Google making us stupid. And it will certainly affect your daily anxiety levels. Americans, on average, check their phone once every 12 minutes, burying their heads in their phones 80 times a day. 80 times. You're summoning those birds, calling them to rob you of the peace that God intends for you to live under. And ask again, why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we do this to ourselves? Well, what's a prognosis? Andy Crouch wrote a wonderful little book I commend to you called The Tech Wise Family. is a way to put helpful constraints around this very powerful tool so that we can do what we want to do, and that's be more present and be less anxious. And Crouch gives several suggestions in his book. Here are a few our families adopted. First, we put our technology to bed before we go to bed, and we wake up before our technology wakes up. What do you mean by that? It's an hour before bed, you turn your phone off or you put it on do not disturb. Same thing in the morning. You resist the temptation, and we'll talk about the temptation in a second, but you resist the temptation to pick up your phone. No, it's turned off. You do not look at your phone until you've had an opportunity to set your mind for that day on God's promises, on God's wisdom for you, on God's word for you. That means, yes, that you never again will sleep with your phone beside your bed. You say, well, how will I wake up without my alarm? Well, there's this amazing invention called an alarm clock. They still sell those. You get an alarm clock. And you have rooms in your house that are phone-free zones. Phone-free zones. And for us in our, in our home, that is the kitchen table. You know that's one reason that kids want a phone so badly. It's not just because all their friends have them. It's because they see what gets their parents' primary attention. So we don't allow phones at our dinner table. And whenever I'm using my phone, at the, whenever I break this rule, my kids call me out on it. Dad, no phones at the table. Because they know what's a dinner table for. Listening. Conversation. Asking each other, how are you doing? How was your day? What were the highlights? What were the lowlights? Cal Newport, in his uh, book, Digital Minimalism, suggests removing all apps from your phone. 
A New York Times writer says that to use your phone more effectively, you should remove all social media. He has to use his phone for his work. He's a New York Times writer, but to be more productive, he took off all social media. See, I'm, I'm suggesting you must find ways to shoo these birds away. And I'm suggesting that you do have choices. Dallas Willard, one of the great Christian writers of the last 50 years, was once asked, what is the one piece of advice he would give to someone who wants to grow closer to God? And he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And how is that possible? Well, it means you have a choice. Because if you open up that phone and that flood of emails or texts come in, oh, you are inviting the birds. You are inviting fretting over you. And those are all very important things to do, but only one thing is necessary. And that is first to hear from the wisdom of God, the promises of God that will always endure, that you can always rely upon. So anytime you're feeling impatient, and I'm a very impatient person, take that as an invitation to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, to be still and listen to Jesus. Stillness is the key, says Ryan Holiday. That means creating space in your schedule for solitude, even in Los Angeles. And there will be seasons in your life, especially as a young parent, where those moments will be very brief. But you must, for the seed to take root again and again, you must carve out space to be still. Listen to Jesus. If this sounds idealistic to you, if you say, sounds like advice from a pastor, you know, we, doesn't he understand, doesn't he appreciate how busy we are? The demands on us. Well, did you know that Winston Churchill took a nap every day in the middle of World War II? During World War II, Churchill would nap for at least an hour in the early afternoon. And he thought this was essential to wake up and do his work for battling the Axis powers. Here's how he put it in his memoir. Nature has not intended mankind to work from eight in the morning until night without refreshment, even if it lasts but 20 minutes. It is sufficient and vital to renew your vital forces. I hear that anecdote, and I think if Churchill could find a bit of silence in the midst of leading an entire nation through world war, then perhaps you and I are not as busy as we might believe ourselves to be. But the birds come, and they devour the seed. And here's a little secret. We love the birds. Oh, we think we hate them. See, you hear this sermon today that you spend 12 years of your life on your phone, and you go, oh, the horrors. You're going to wake up tomorrow and do the same thing you've always done. <laughs> Why is that? Why do we do this to ourselves? Well, I can't get through too many sermons without quoting Blaise Pascal. Um, here's his diagnosis. Take away their diversions and you will see them bored to extinction. And then they will feel. That's the key line. Then they will feel. And nothing could be more wretched. As soon as one is reduced to introspection with no means of diversion. He's saying the idea of being left to ourselves without diversion, this would terrify us because we'd be forced to confront how we're really feeling. 
we'd be forced to confront the pain that is in all of our hearts. Pascal continues, the only thing that consoles us for our miseries is our diversion. And yet he says, this is the greatest of miseries. Of course, he was talking before uh, uh, handheld phones or computers. But he says, when you pick that thing up, you, you think you're using it to make yourself feel better. And he says, but actually in the long term, this is only making you feel worse. For it is that above all which prevents us from thinking about ourselves and leads us imperceptibly to our destruction. But for that we should be bored. He said, if you would just allow yourself to feel, that might lead us to seek some more solid means of escape, of escape, but instead diversion passes our time and leads us imperceptibly to our death. Oh, he's saying that we have to let ourselves feel. And I think we can say that Jesus is saying in this parable that, that we have to be still and listen to let the seed of his word penetrate our normal ways of doing things, the well-worn path to get away from our business as usual, lest we will drift slowly and imperceptibly toward destruction. But this is how people drift away from God, slowly and imperceptibly. Now, I'll grant you there's not much sugar in that pill. So how about this? Next time you're standing in line at the grocery store. Oh, I know what we do, because I do the same thing. We evaluate the lines, and we look for the quickest one. We do our quick calculations of the quickest line. So the next time you find yourself in a grocery store, take that as an opportunity to either get in the slowest line, or just, you just don't count, you just don't care. And you are going to take that extra five minutes as an invitation from the very Spirit of God. God, you're giving me a little break in my day. Because Winston Churchill got to take a nap, but I don't. So I'm going to take five minutes here in line at Trader Joe's or Vaughn's. And I'm going to sit and be still and commune with you, yes, in the middle of a grocery store. And remember what you say to me about how loved I am by you. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life so that God's word can break the soil. You don't have to fear the light. You don't have to fear the light. That's the only way you're going to be healed is to let yourself feel. The other seed, the second uh, soil, Jesus says, fell on the rocky ground. The rocky ground where it had not much soil and immediately it sprang up, but when the sun rose, it was scorched. And Jesus says, and since it had no root, it withered. And Jesus says, these are those who hear the word and immediately receive it with joy. And it endured for a while. It endured for a while, but when the sun arose and the scorching heat came down, because there were no roots, Jesus said, it withered. And of course, this brings to mind friends, family members, who once seemed to have a deep relationship with God, but if fallen away, left the faith. That's why they're called trials, because they try your faith to see what's in your heart, how we respond to adversity. Paul Tillich said that. This is you to yourself and reminds you you're not the person you thought you were. 
We said last week that the same sun shines on mud and on chocolate. Same sun, same circumstance, same event. But if it shines on mud, it hardens it. And if it shines on chocolate, it softens and melts. It's the same circumstance. The difference is the soil that sun finds. And that when adversity comes into our lives that we did not want, you always have that choice. Is this going to harden me, embitter me, or is this going to soften and melt me? Maybe you saw the video, someone said it to you, the interview with Stephen Colbert and Anderson Cooper after Anderson Cooper's mom had died, and of course he was grieving. And in that video, Colbert talked about uh, when, when, as a boy, he had lost his father and two siblings in a horrible accident. And Cooper questioned how Colbert had learned to accept this tragedy as a way of life. Cooper said, you told an interviewer that you had learned, in your words, to love the things that I most wish had not happened. And at this point, Anderson Cooper breaks down on air. Did you see it? He started crying. He started crying on air. And he, he, he choked back the tears and he said, you went on to say, what punishments of God are not gifts? He said, do you really believe that? And right there on network television, Stephen Colbert talked about his faith in Jesus. And he replied that the quote uh, actually was from the Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien. And Colbert continued, it's a gift to exist, but with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. I don't want it to have happened. I want it not to have happened. But if you are grateful for your life, which I think is a positive thing to do, and not everybody is, and I'm not always, but it's the most positive thing to do, Colbert says, then you have to be grateful for all of life. You cannot pick and choose what to be grateful for. See, that is a man navigating the sun. And is it going to harden me like mud, or is it going to soften me like chocolate? And we know these ways, don't we? Mud is the way of bitterness and resentment. Malice and chocolate breaks your heart, melts you, and makes you a compassionate person. And it's so hard because, of course, of course, your instinct is toward resentment. Resentment is the number one reason we medicate ourselves. You've heard said resentment, resentment feeling sorry for yourself or wanting the other to suffer. Resentment is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. But we take it down. We think we're hurting them, but we're hurting ourselves with our bitterness, with our unforgiveness. It's a process. So what's the prognosis for when this unwanted adversity comes into your life? Well, it looks like accepting this as the, as the wisdom of God, taking responsibility for your own feelings. And I know it's hard because what comes naturally to us is not taking responsibility, and that means blame shifting. Boy, that's come, that's come to us uh, from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, blame shifting thinking that the way we feel is because of what the other person has done to us or what has happened to us. Instead, 
instead of blame shifting, you take this adversity as God's training of your soul. And you too can quote Tolkien, what punishments of God are not gifts? And you can say with Stephen Colbert, of course I did not want this to happen, but God has wrestled me down so that you might learn where your true strength will come from. Strength comes from those who have learned to wait upon the Lord. And so you see your pain as an opportunity. You didn't want it, but it's an opportunity to hear from God, to hear from God in ways you never had, so God can finally set you free from that bitterness and resentment, that prison you've been living in. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. And I know it can last longer than you want. But we believe in a redemptive God. You persevere. But it's this third soil, it's this third soil in verse 7 that keeps me up at night. Other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it out, and it yielded no grain. And then in verse 19, if you look at that verse, Jesus tells us what these thorns are. He said, those are the, these are those who hear the word. They hear the word, but the cares of the world, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And underline that phrase, the desires for other things chokes the word and it proves unfruitful thorns thorns here are people who have heard the word of god they have taken it in it's taken root in your life and who are these people well they are us these are sincere church-going people see do not dilute the parable don't dilute the medicine by turning these uh people into hypocrites no these are sincere men and women like many of us, who want to do the right thing, but the thorns, the anxieties of life, the cares of the world, the desire for other things overwhelms you with worries about what you have to do, and the stress strangles the word. On July 25th, 1741, John Wesley addressed the student body of Oxford University, and he delivered a famous sermon that I believe we need to hear today. It was entitled, The Almost Christian. The Almost Christian is one having the form of godliness, but denying its power. The godliness prescribed in the gospel, Wesley said, that is one having the very outside of a real Christian. The Almost Christian, Wesley says, does nothing which the gospel forbids. For this is a good and upstanding man or woman, thoughtful, considerate of others. He does not lie or cheat or steal. He would not willingly hurt any man. He frequents the house of God, that is, goes to church regularly, and Wesley adds, and he pays attention. He prays and he desires to be virtuous for virtue's sake, not for fear of punishment. And Wesley asks, is it possible that any man living should go so far as this and nevertheless be only an almost Christian? And then he begs permission and says, so sadly, yes. And he tells his only story. He tells his own story. He gives himself as the prime example. That he was for many years in the Lord's service. He wasn't just going to church. He was a missionary. I was for many years in the Lord's service. But he says, but I did not love God. I had a hearty desire to please God in all things. 
to please him who had called me to fight the good fight. Yet my own conscience beareth me witness in the Holy Ghost that all this time I was but almost a Christian. You hear what the great man was saying? He was sincere, but he was lost. What then makes someone a Christian? And Wesley answers, I answer first the love of God. For thus says God's word, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and all thy mind. Such love as this is engrosses the whole heart and rakes up all the affections. Rakes up all the affections. I love that image. Wesley said, His spirit continually rejoices in God as Savior. He delight, his delight is in the Lord. His Lord and His all. In everything he gives thanks, for all his desires unto God, and his, art is, his heart is ever crying out, Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none on earth that I desire beside thee. Indeed, what can he desire besides God? Not this world or the things of this world, for he is crucified to the world and the world crucified to him. Wesley said, It is love of God makes one a Christian. He said, and he adds, And faith. And faith. There is yet one more thing that may be separately considered, though it cannot actually be separate from the preceding, which is implied in being altogether a Christian. And this is the ground of all, even our faith. And then he quotes the Gospel of John. To as many as received him, he gave the power to become sons of God, even to them that will believe on his name. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And then he quotes Jesus, He that believeth in the Son have everlasting life, and cometh not into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. And Wesley goes on to add that a heart that loves God will produce a living faith that bears fruit. The right and true Christian faith is not only to believe the articles of our faith, it's not only to believe the articles of our faith, but also to have a sure trust and confidence to be saved from everlasting damnation by Christ. It is a sure trust and confidence which a man has in God that by the merits of Christ, his sins are forgiven and he is reconciled to the favor of God wherefrom flows a loving heart to obey God's commandments. You never hear people preach like this today. Wesley is saying the only way you will overcome these thorns, these good things that are distracting you from the most important thing is this deeper affection that rakes up all of our affections. It rakes up all the others and puts them in order. The focus is not on the soil. The soil takes no credit. This is the parable of the sower, which is to say, God, you have reached down and rescued this poor man and you have given me everything I need for life and for godliness. And so even the storms that you send. Even the storms are for the ripping out of the thorns. They're choking out the life you intend for me. That is the reason that we crave and scrap and fret is because we feel a deprivation. We feel a deprivation of love and joy. We feel this emptiness and we think, oh, if only, if only I can secure that, if only I can have that that we're so worried about. That relationship or that job or that diagnosis, good things. These are all good things, these thorns, these cares of the world, these other desires. But they are distracting us. They are diverting us 
from what we already have if we are in Christ. The abundance, the fullness, the sufficiency of Christ. That if you have Jesus, if you belong to him, what fruit has he already promised to shed abroad in your hearts? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of his spirit. We have these if we have Christ. If only we would be still. If only we would abide in him. Jesus says, abide in me, and he calls himself the true vine, implying that there are other vines that we think are going to give us the happiness and security we crave. But no, they are choking out. They are choking out the life that you want. He said, none but Jesus. Who will give you the life that you crave? None but Jesus. And that's how you root out these thorns, the love of Christ who first loved you and gave himself for you. So for his sake, for Jesus' sake, you come to hate those thorns, even those good things, because they are robbing you of a deeper joy. You come to scorn those birds because you know they are calling you away from your true love's presence. And yes, you come to accept the scorching trials, even to love the things that you most wish had not happened. So Wesley asked those undergraduates, he says, I beseech you, as in the presence of God, that each of you would ask his own heart, am I of that number? Am I of that number? Or have I only the very outside of a Christian, the form of godliness? And then Wesley presses his point home. Are not many of you conscious that you never even came thus far? That you have not even been almost a Christian? That you have not come up to the standard of a noble unbeliever? That you have never so much as intended to devote all your words and works, all your business and studies to the glory of God? Wesley said, but supposing you had, do these good designs make you a Christian? By no means. Hell is paved with good intentions. The great question of all then still remains, is the love of God shed abroad in your heart? Can you cry out, my God and my all? Are you happy in God? Is God your glory, your delight, and your crown of rejoicing? Do you believe that Christ loved you and gave himself for you? That he has taken your sins and cast them as a stone into the depth of the sea? That he has blotted out the handwriting against you, taking it out of the way and nailing it to the cross? Does his spirit bear witness with your spirit that in spite of it all, you are indeed a child of God? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ stands in the midst of us and says, Awake then, thou that sleepest, and call upon the Lord in the day that he may be found. And Wesley says, Let no man persuade thee by vain words to rest short of this prize, but cry out to God day and night, who while we were without strength died for the ungodly, until you know, until you know the one in whom you have believed. And your heart says, my Lord and my God. And one last word, if the sun is scorching on you today, if you feel the sun scorching on you today, you remember always to pray and not faint. Then you reach your drooping hand to heaven and you declare to him that lives forever and ever, Lord, thou knowest all things.
Lord, you see everything, and yet you still accept us. And this is what we want to be about here at Pacific Crossroads, becoming who we are in Christ Jesus, moving away from that first soil, resisting those birds, learning to meditate upon God's word, rooting our life more and more in God's promises, standing firm in the scorching heat, weeping may tarry for the night, and it can be a long night, but you persevere. You persevere and you will see the goodness of the Lord rooting out the thorns, the desires of this world, the cares of this world that are tearing you away. And you rake all those desires up under a deeper affection. We want to be a community that is so unsettling to the almost Christian, a form of godliness, because we know a person who lets Jesus only halfway into his heart, only halfway is far poorer than a 100% person of this world. Because you will never get the peace that passes understanding, but you will even lose the world's peace because your naivete has been taken from you. But if we would be still and listen to Jesus, then we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our life. Are you troubled? Do you hear Wesley's sermon and think, am I almost a Christian? Oh, that's how you know the real seed has indeed taken root in your heart. As you hear it and you say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. You don't want these birds any longer. You see these thorns that are choking out the life you want. And you want this deep assurance that you belong to him. And I tell you, the deep assurance you crave will only come on the other side of persevering through and abiding in Jesus. Abide in him. You hear his word. You stand under it. May we all thus experience what it is to be, not almost only, but altogether Christians, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, knowing that we have peace with God in Christ, rejoicing in hope for the glory of God, and having the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us. One who has ears here. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, are we not like those students from 300 years ago? pinned to our seats by the words of Dr. Wesley. Would you take our eyes off of our circumstances, off of our soils? Would you cast our eyes upon you, our strong savior, our redeemer, our defender, our friend? Lord, we do have so many other desires. Would you rake them all up and place them under? Lord Jesus, would you rule in our hearts without arrival. Lord, when we come to see, choosing to abide in you is the way to the free and fruitful life we crave. 30, 60, even a hundredfold, even for us.